Hello and welcome to the Interactive Investor Podcast, where we discuss matters of investment interest. I'm Richard Hunter, Head of Markets, and in this episode, I'm delighted to be joined by Matthias Siller, who is co-manager of the Bearing Emerging Europe Fund. In terms of his experience, Matthias uh, has over two decades of trading and managing Central and Eastern European equity funds, and he heads up Bearing's EMEA equities team. So first and foremost, a very warm welcome, Matthias, and thank you for sparing us some of your time. Hello, thank you for having me. I guess um, Bearing Emerging Europe is pretty much a good clue, but uh, first and foremost, could you kind of talk us through what the objective of the fund is, please? Um, the objective of the fund is long-term capital accumulation, benefiting from what we think what we think is going to be superior growth in emerging Europe vis-a-vis developed Europe and other parts of the world. Do you uh, see at the moment that that sort of emerging market has a, a particular attraction given where we are in terms of the overall global economic backdrop? It's certainly tough times for emerging markets, uh, but I'd also recommend seeing emerging Europe not only through the prism of emerging markets, but also for the prism of Europe. In the, Europe, in the European context, I do believe that European investors should very much uh, pay some attention to the other four to 500 million Europeans, which are normally not in anyone's um, or hardly in anyone's portfolio uh, consideration, because I think you'll get some very interesting opportunities here from a European perspective. So, so what sort of economies are included within this particular fund of yours? You can break it down to three major components being that would be the new EU member states, the small open uh, economies such as Romania, Hungary, Czech Republic, Slovakia and Poland. The second component would be the former, the former Soviet Union, uh, so mainly Russia and Ukraine on that front. Uh, and lastly, uh, quite an important component would also be Turkey. That's the, the three buildings, building blocks that constitute the largest part of um, bearing emerging European C currently. And in terms of the constituents themselves, uh, would you describe yourself as tending more to, towards being uh, an income kind of fund or more of a sort of growth fund? I don't want to avoid this uh, answering this question, but it's, it's a blend. You know, I want to make a strong point here. I think that's the beauty. And that's, um, if I could leave one message today, it's that you don't, from our perspective, from my perspective, you don't have to compromise between those two things. That's the beauty about emerging markets. I'm specifically emerging Europe in, in that sense, that you can actually uh, invest in growth and still get a good yield out of it. You can, you can bet on capital accumulation and still enjoy a good yield underpinning. I think that's the main attraction of emerging Europe at this particular juncture. So in, in terms of investment themes um, and or opportunities, what do you think uh, emerging Europe gives us that perhaps some other regions might not? Well, first of all, I would highlight uh, my opinion that the emerging European consumer is in a very good uh, state right now and you get exposure to emerging European consumption at very attractive prices. When I say good state, I think that balance sheets look very attractive. I mean, talk about household balance sheets in emerging Europe. They look very, very solid. I think that's a main differentiator going forward. I think that some of the uh, globalization trends that are currently being rolled back will play, you know, very in a very advantaged way for emerging European households. I think that with regards to job security and uh, export strength, I think that emerging European companies find will find themselves in an advantageous role relative to other companies in Europe and in the world. 
but a lot of things that are playing out in favor of the Central and Eastern European and emerging European consumer here, which I, which I find very interesting. And like I said, this translates into growth, but also into yields. So in terms of the, the average uh, sort of company that you're looking at, um, are we talking early stage companies or mid, mid cap companies or, or even some of the, the larger caps of the companies? It would be certainly well-established companies, but dominant ones. Uh, or companies where we, be, where we believe that they will achieve dominance in a relatively short order of time. I want to underscore here that this is a deliberately chosen strategy. Insofar as uh, I don't think that you have to take this extra risk to achieve a, you know, a very healthy return going forward. Uh, you can actually bet, if you want, uh, your money on um, more established companies um, because the growth that you get out there is completely mispriced from my perspective. Obviously, in terms of uh, traditional funds, um that, that there can be all, all sorts of differences as to the amount of stocks uh, held within the fund and therefore the amount of research that needs to go into those stocks. Um, how many sort of um, stocks have you got in the fund at the moment and, and how do you whittle them down from the obviously large universe? We've got, 40, got 43 stocks uh, in our uh, portfolio in the moment um, and that, that would be an average number. So the fluctuation is from the mid-30s to the low 50s uh, in terms of stock count. So it's a relatively... If you want, it's a relatively focused uh, portfolio, but mind you, uh, this is also, you know, kind of a very focused um, uh, geography. Um, so I wouldn't, you know, I wouldn't say that this is, uh, that this is in any way inappropriate, uh, but we certainly do run, do, do want to run uh, portfolios that express our conviction um, rather than anything else. So we are, we, are, we are very okay with that. Understood. And in terms of your conviction, what sort of sectors within those markets are you currently drawn towards in terms of your, your, your more favoured sectors? Well, it would be telecommunication services, um, the internet, e-commerce, financials, um, and selected energy names. That would be um, where we are currently um, investing. And uh, you, you'll, find those, you'll find those sectors also adequately positioned in our portfolio right now. The energy sector, of course, is one that's in uh, particular focus at the moment, given the continued oversupply that we've seen in oil, for example, uh, let alone the demand destruction and indeed the inability to store the physical oil. So you remain committed uh, to that particular sector within this region, presumably. It's certainly very interesting times. We remain committed. Um, we are, uh, however, very selective uh, on that front. Um, we do pay much more attention right now to upstream oil. We, you know, less invested or hardly at all invested into the refining sector. Um, we believe that um, the energy names that we have chosen to invest in um, have uh, will benefit from the low oil prices, uh, low oil price environment. We are actually of the opinion that um, the faster we get uh, to an environment where we see sh international shut-ins in terms of upstream production, the better. So I can only hope for low oil prices for a certain amount of time because I will believe that this will put balance back into the into the oil market and the companies that we invest in are definitely benefiting from this kind of balance. The nature, um, and this comes by the sheer nature of the fact that we have the opinion that those companies are perfectly uh, situated for a low oil price environment. They benefit from some costs, little investment needs, uh, and low production costs in terms of um, lifting costs per barrel. And on, the, and, of the, and on the top of it, they also post fortress balance sheets, uh, ungeared balance sheets, contrary to, contrary to many other international, international peers. So in other words, 
the entire as the, the entire amount of assets um, are being financed by equity and equity only, and that gives them so much more degrees of freedom uh, in the current crisis. And mind you, last not least, also preserves their ability to pay dividends and healthy dividends uh, in this in this environment. It's a very interesting viewpoint. I, I noticed that uh, uh, another, as you mentioned, another sector that you're drawn towards um, is financials. Obviously, financials can cover anything from banks to insurers. What is it about that particular sector within that region that appeals to you? You point your finger at the exact right feature. We do, um, you know, we do also approach the financial sector from a very differentiated pers- uh, angular perspective. We do indeed have uh, an overweight in insurers and we do indeed have an overweight in fintech and challenger banks. Uh, mind you, this again, as I pointed out at the beginning, this doesn't mean that these are fledgling small companies. They are challenger. They are challenges, but they are, you know, starting from a very, or they are operating at the, from a very healthy perspective in terms of uh, funding, and they already command a good amount of market share. Um, it's actually quite interesting that one of um, our holdings, Tinkoff um, a Financial Group, uh, that's a London-listed uh, Russian um, fintech company and challenger bank, is actually, uh, to my knowledge, the largest global bank that doesn't have a single branch outlet. Um, so this is okay. the largest global bank that does not have a branch network. Um, I find that I find that quite interesting. Um, so you do see that, yeah, we do indeed follow a very differentiated approach here. We are overweight uh, fintech, we are overweight stock exchanges, and we are overweight um, um, insurers within our financial exposure. And in terms of weightings, um, are there, are there, how is your fund broken down? in terms of um, country weightings, for example? Currently, about two-thirds of our assets are invested in Russia. Um, we are very happy about that, so it's not something where we kind of find ourselves in. This is deliberately chosen, of course. R- Russia offers you a wide, uh, wide uh, spectrum of investment opportunities. I highlighted uh, the energy names. Um, you know, A lot of them are uh, Russian energy names. And I highlighted to you why we are very happy to invest uh, our, our shareholders' money there uh, currently. We also do see a lot of very interesting things on the e-commerce and internet front. Um, I highlighted to you at the beginning that I think that uh, emerging Europe also deserves to be seen through the prism of Europe, right? And I think it's very obvious to me and many other investors that, um, that, that Europe um, has uh, severe difficulties in actually emulating um, the... The, the, the internet and social network um, system that, uh, that, that the US and China have actually built up. That's not the case in Russia. Um, and we, do see, we do see a lot of uh, Russian companies that have been competing very successfully uh, with their uh, competitors from China and, and from the US over the last couple of years and have actually now, uh, but mind you, not by political influence, but by sheer market forces, actually won this battle, um, we, we believe, or um, you know, seem to be very well situated to continue to, uh, to compete uh, successfully against the international counterparts and are now striking actually deals, um, which um, we think benefits them with their Chinese uh, counterparts in terms, of, in terms of market consolidation. So this is very, something very, very interesting from the European perspective. These are uh, this is social network companies and e-commerce companies that actually win out. This is a very rare de- development uh, in Europe. And we see that happening um, in Russia, which makes us uh, which makes us quite positive from many angles. I think also from the perspective of talent, right? And whether or not uh, these companies can actually benefit from an, from the underlying talent pool in um, in Russia with regards to coders and, and other so, you know other employees. 
we do think this kind of talent is around in emerging Europe, and we are quite, you know we tend, we want to benefit from that um, by investing in those companies. So, with that in mind, um, could you possibly uh, maybe talk us through? Obviously, we're not talking recommendations, but we're talking about facts as they stand. Perhaps just talk us through uh, a couple of companies in which you tend to have a, a slightly higher weighting. Absolutely. So I'd start with uh, with Luke Oil. So that's one of our largest holdings uh, currently in the portfolio. As the name says, it's a, it's an energy company. It's one of the largest oil producers globally in terms of barrels of oil produced. But per day, what we like about this company is a combination of a fortress balance sheet. It's 100% equity financed, plus the fact that we think it's uh, one of the cheapest oil producers globally. So in a way, this is um, Luke Oil is going to be am- among the last men standing, if you want, if there would be a prolonged period of low energy prices. And this gives us, uh, combined with the very attractive valuation, which express it, expresses itself best in the fact that Luke Oil pays currently about 8 to 9% dividend yield at this uh, very low energy prices without having to raise debt to finance these dividends. This gives us a lot of comfort with this high uh, weighting in our in our portfolio, and um, you know we think this is going to look on is going to be one of our strongest uh, dividend underpins in what we want to um, in, in a portfolio that we want to structure in a way where our shareholders will benefit from a strong dividend flow, combined with um, um, capitalizing on the growth opportunities that we see in other companies. Obviously, your 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 basic currency for the fund is is sterling. So. Um, ha- just, uh, just for our listeners' benefit, how, how do you deal with any um, FX uh, movements or conversions that you might have to make from some of these, some of these European currencies? We consider it very closely, but we don't intend to hedge it. We don't claim to be currency speculators or we don't claim that we have timing abilities in currencies. What we do is we give our, our shareholders a diversified approach. We don't add everything on one currency or one country. It's a diversified approach. Now, um, but and we think that uh, therefore we can actually address the inherent uh, currency risks in a much better way than trying to hedge them outright on the FX market. Firstly, secondly, you could now argue that an investment in Russia, to an extent that we are doing, almost two thirds of our assets are are, are Russian or are Russia related, um, is is obviously uh, proving what I just said wrong. But I uh, but I I'd claim it's certainly not, and the reason being is that. Um, within Russia, you have a lot of currency diversification. Take Lukoil. A, a, a falling ruble plays to the advantage of Lukoil. So I'd expect the sterling price of Lukoil to go up as clearly uh, a falling ruble would uh, benefit Lukoil from the cost perspective. 90% of its investment needs and 100% of its salaries are ruble denominated, while obviously it sells oil. So um, you know, clearly there's an inherent ruble hedge in our largest uh, position, which is Luke Oil. While clearly um, the, the bank that I've been, the challenger bank that I've been talking about before, but also X5, Russia's largest supermarket that we are also heavily invested, they would tend to go the other way. Clearly, um, you know, kind of the, the buckwheat and, and uh, beetroot and potatoes and, and ham that is being sold in, uh, in Piaterochkas, which is X5 supermarkets across all of Russia, they are a ruble de- de- denominated, and you know a fall in the ruble would clearly lead to a fall in the in the sterling share price of, of X5. So all, but all in all, I must say that I'm quite uh, confident that our diversified approach 
will even out the heavy fluctuations in uh, FX currencies. And I'm also personally convinced from my experience, but also for running the numbers, that uh, this is the best approach from an investment perspective to deal with the inherent currency risks in emerging markets, especially emerging Europe. Finally, Matthias, what a difficult question I know, but in your opinion and uh, with this particular region in mind, of course, what, what would you say is the, uh, the nearer and medium term outlook? I'm very confident, right? What, what I see is that COVID-19 is putting investment cases to a real test, not only in emerging Europe, all over the world. I'm confident because uh, I do sincerely believe that the companies we invest in, but to a large extent also the economies, will stand this test. The companies we will invest will actually leave or exit COVID-19 crisis in a much stronger state uh, than they have entered it. So in, in that sense, you know, I'm arguing for market share gains. I'm arguing for more balance in certain commodity markets. I'm arguing for international competition leaving cert- certain markets. So all of that, uh, I think, will play to the strength uh, of a lot of our investments. And therefore, I think um, that investors over time will honor that. Uh, and that will lead to I believe, a positive performance of our investments. I have to say, thank you very much indeed, uh, Mateus. That's been uh, very insightful around that region. Obviously, we wish, wish you the, the very best of luck there. That's uh, Mateus Silla, manager of the uh, Bearing Emerging Europe Fund. Uh, and thank you very much indeed for listening as well. Do please join us next time for the next Interactive Investor Podcast. 